I am actually so grateful that you guys are coming so faithfully to this study. I know it's not easy. We've been, we did the first half of the book of Leviticus last week, the second half this week. This is a massive amount of study, and I know it's hard, but I am so moved by how faithful and committed that you have been. When I visit your groups, you guys Lessons totally done, deeply engaged in conversation. I just can't even tell you what joy that brings me. And so thank you. Thank you for being in such a difficult place of a Bible study. This is probably as hard as it gets. And you're here, and you're faithful, and you're learning, and you're, you're excited about what you're learning. And so um, it matters. I just want you to know it matters that we do this together. It matters that we come in on a Tuesday and we worship the Lord the way that we do as a group of women. And it matters that we're in God's Word together. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about that a little bit later today, just why it matters so much. But I want to say thank you first. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All Scripture is breathed by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Leviticus is part of all scripture, and so it matters that we study Leviticus. You know, um, when my boys were in junior high and high school, I tried to be as involved as I could. You know how it is when your kids are in elementary school? It's so easy to be engaged because you can be a room parent, you can do art literacy, you can be a recess mom. There's lots of ways to get involved. But when your kids get into junior high and high school, it's a lot harder to kind of keep your finger on the pulse of what's happening in their world. But one of the ways I really enjoyed getting involved with my boys was through the drama and music program. Spencer was super involved in drama, and Adam was super involved in music, so it gave me a really great chance to spend really large blocks of time hanging out at the school with kids, with teachers, and that kind of thing. And you know how it is, like, when you're, when you're just serving in those capacities, you end up building really good friendships with the people that are serving alongside of you. And you also build sometimes really good friendships with the teachers that are part of those programs. And so one teacher in particular during that season of life became very dear to our family. Um, He was a young man. He had a young wife and a young son. And he was just such a great guy. So fun and talented and wholesome and conscientious. And I just thought so surely that he was primed to meet Jesus. He just seemed like he was a pre-Christian to me. He was just, just would be the greatest believer in Jesus. And it also seemed like God was really wooing him to himself because God also was not just forming a friendship between him and our family, but also there were other families in our community who were followers of Christ who also came alongside of him and and came alongside his young family to, to love and support him. And so it just seemed like the Lord was doing such an amazing work in calling this young man and his family to faith. Then naturally, we were friends for maybe five years. So over the course of those years, um, we had so many deep conversations about the Bible and about faith. Um, But then eventually, we came to a place where our friendship became really stunted by my faith. Um, Because he just couldn't understand how any intelligent person could believe the Bible. And, of course, that was a hard reality eventually for us to push through in our friendship because I'm not just a Christ follower. I'm a Bible teacher. So when you think that no sane person could 
be a Christ follower or a Bible teacher, and yet you call them friend, eventually there gets to be a little bit of a a tension in that relationship, so to speak. Um, But it was interesting because his perception was that Christians were legalistic and delusional people. And yet he loved our family and the other Christian families that were wrapped around him at the time. But the reason he held this view was because of the book of Leviticus. It was this book that solidified in him a decision to be a humanist rather than a Christian. And this is what he said to me one day. He said, I could never believe in a God who would ordain the book of Leviticus to be written. He said, the, the Bible is surely a man-made document written by judgmental and condemning people. Therefore, there is no God. You know, sadly, the book of Leviticus is a stumbling block for many people in their walk of faith because they don't understand the context of this story in the whole of God's redemptive story. They can't, we can't, as we know, when we study the Bible, we can't isolate portions of Scripture out from the whole. And that's why it's so important for us to study even the New Testament in light of the Old Testament, because it all goes together. It's all one amazing love story of God's redemptive history in this world through Jesus Christ. So as believers, when we look at the book of Leviticus, we see it as, beca- as actually being one of the most beautiful revelations of Scripture. As we've just sung about the holiness of God, the book of Leviticus sets our hearts on fire to see God's holiness for who he is and to see ourselves rightly before him and to answer his call to be holy people because he is holy. Now, last week, what we learned was that God is holy And because he has now built the tabernacle among his people in Israel and is coming to dwell in their presence, he is is a holy God dwelling with a sinful people. And so he is calling out his people to be holy because he is holy. And the only way they can become holy is that they have to recognize their sinfulness, repent, and receive forgiveness, which is going to come through the system of sacrifices. I'm sorry that last week we missed meeting together because it's, it's the whole first part of Leviticus is really important. And if you get a chance, the podcast is up on the website because we were able to meet in the evening and we're able to get a recording of that. So you're welcome to go find it and listen back. But here's just a quick review to kind of give you perspective for where we are today. In chapters 1 through 7, God gave instructions for ritual sacrifices, and these were going to allow the Israelites to acknowledge their sinfulness, that they can't keep the Ten Commandments, and then to receive forgiveness for their sins through the blood, shed blood of an animal. So God is just, and he will punish sin, but he is also gracious, and he provides a way for sin to be forgiven through these sacrificial offerings. Then in Leviticus 8 through 10, God gave instructions regarding the ordination of the priests, the first priesthood, which was Aaron, and he had four sons, and then two of them made an unlawful offering, probably out of pride and maybe out of drunkenness, and now he only has two sons left because God judged them for their their irreverence toward him and his word. Um, That was in 8 through 10. And then in 11 through 15, God gave instructions for maintaining purity. And a lot of these instructions were about cleanliness and purity, things that the Israelites would not have known coming out of Egypt. But now they're living in a wilderness. And so many of the instructions he gave them were actually to save their lives, to maintain, to keep them from diseases. They were meant to protect the Israelites from defilement, disease, and death. 
which is the exact opposite of what God is providing, which is holiness, health, and life. So in order to give them holiness, health, and life, he needs to give them instructions to protect them from defilement, disease, and death. So Leviticus is an instruction book for the Israelites to learn how they can be a holy people in the presence of a holy God. They were to be holy because God is holy. So today we're going to look at the ritual feasts as seen in Leviticus 23. We're going to talk about the Day of Atonement. So we're going to go back to Leviticus 16 and also capture a little bit of it in 23 and help understand what is this Day of Atonement. It's so significant. It's kind of the, it's kind of the, the, the anchor for the whole book of Leviticus. And then we're going to talk about the details of obedience that are given throughout Leviticus 17 through 27. But here's what we need to know. Our lives are meant to be holy because God's Spirit dwells within us through Jesus Christ. We can look at this and say, well, this was written for another time and another people, and they were dwelling with the presence of God, and therefore it doesn't apply to me. But the reality is that if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. And though you don't need to live by the law because Jesus came to fulfill the law and the sacrifices, you still have a response to God in gratitude and worship to live a life of holiness because the Spirit of God is within you. And that's what we're going to learn today. So let's jump in. First, talking about the ritual feasts. So one of the things we saw when we looked at the first set of feasts and sacrifices was that all that was being done wasn't just for that moment in time. It was all done to foreshadow the coming of Christ. God is doing a very particular thing in calling out his people in order to to teach them, to prepare them for the Messiah who would come and fulfill all these laws and sacrifices. And so now we learn that God gave the Israelites six holy days that were meant to be celebrations of their miraculous delivery from slavery. The first is the Passover. And this was a feast that that actually celebrated that final deliverance from Egypt when the angel of death went over the country, over the nation. And do you remember the story we studied in Exodus that the Israelites were to take the blood of a lamb and paint it over the lintel of their door. And when the angel of death passed over, he would look upon the blood and that would cover the sins of the people that lived in that home and they would not pay the penalty for sin, which was the death of their firstborn child, firstborn son. And so now they're being called. God is saying, you've got to remember what I did to rescue you from slavery and bondage in Egypt by remembering this every single year. It's called the Passover. It was the reminder of God's saving grace, and it was going to happen on the 14th day of the month of what was called Nisan, which was the first month of the Hebrew calendar. So we would call that January, but for them it was called Nisan, and it was a little different than our month. So during this time, the Israelites were to celebrate. They were to have a special Passover meal that included a lamb. They were to have unleavened bread because, remember, part of the Passover uh, exodus out of Egypt was that they were not allowed to put yeast in their bread because they had to be ready to go in haste. So as a reminder now, they would make unleavened bread to remember that, that day when they had to be ready to go. Um, now, as we look forward to the other side of the cross... The Passover is a picture of Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God, as John so calls him. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so Passover, in, in this 
um, culture in this time, this celebration was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, the Passover lamb who came, who died, who shed his own blood for the forgiveness of sins. So God now looks at the blood of Christ and forgives us. We live instead of die. In 1 Corinthians 5.7, it's kind of a weird verse, but it says this, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The second is the Feast of the First Fruits. So this feast occurred around the springtime, same time as the Passover. It was the early harvest of barley, the first barley of the season. And what they would do is they would get sheaves of barley and they would wave them over the head. It's also called the wave offering. And they would wave, lift them high and wave them over their heads. And this would just signify that the entire first crop of barley is being dedicated to the Lord in worship. Now on this side of the cross, we also find in the New Testament that Jesus is called the first fruits. Because he is the first to be lifted up in resurrection. And one day all believers will also be resurrected to new life in Christ. So that feast was foreshadowing the resurrection of Christ. And we see in verses 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, speaking of the resurrection. The third celebration is the Feast of Weeks. So this festival commemorates the wheat harvest, and it begins on the first day of the week, which is our Sunday, and it's observed for seven weeks plus one day. So for seven weeks plus one day, beginning on the first Sabbath after Passover, it's this celebration of the Feast of Weeks. Now, seven weeks and one day is 50. And so that's why this is also called Pentecost, because Pentecost is 50, 50 days. And so, um, that's, so now we go to the, the New Testament, and we find that in Acts... On the 50th day, the Holy Spirit was given, came upon the the believers, the disciples. And that moment when the Holy Spirit was given began a gospel harvest in the world where many, many people came to faith in Christ and the gospel began to spread throughout all the nations. God was foreshadowing with each of these feasts what would come to fulfillment in Christ. Then there was the Feast of Trumpets. Now, this was a special day of rest, and it was held on the first day of the seventh month, which is actually halfway through the Jewish calendar. So for us, the first day of the seventh month is July 1st, right? Thank you. Um, So this actually marked marked the beginning of a series of festivals. So there would be the Day of Atonement came at this time. The Feast of the Tabernacles came at this time. Today, this day is celebrated as Rosh Hashanah, which is the Jewish New Year. And then there was the Day of Atonement, which we read about the Atonement last week in chapter 16, but it's also mentioned again in chapter 23. We didn't get a chance to discuss it last week, so we're going to discuss it in the next division. But this became a day of fasting and sacrifice and celebration, reminding each other of God's faithfulness to, to rescue them from sin and slavery in Egypt. And this occurred 10 days after the Feast of Trumpets, So it was a time for a lot of self-examination, a time of of searching the heart for sin, repenting, confessing. We'll talk about more about that in a minute. 
And then there was the Feast of Tabernacles. So this then took place in the fall. So September, October-ish. Um, it was also called the Feast of Booths. And this was where people, um, this is now, God gave this feast during this time of, of Leviticus, but this is still practiced today for many um, Orthodox Jews, where it's, it's a reminder of when the people were in the wilderness. And so what they would do is they would build like temporary shelters out of palms and branches, and they would make, they would live in them outside of their homes, and they would be reminded of the time that we're studying right now when Israel was wandering through the wilderness for all of these many years. And they would be grateful for God's faithfulness towards them and his provision towards them as they journeyed to the promised land. So all of these special days of celebration were to be reminders of God's past faithfulness, to be reminders of their history. And it's really not unlike what we do at Thanksgiving, right? When we're celebrating Thanksgiving once a year, we're remembering our nation and how our nation came to be discovered by pilgrims and how the pilgrims met the Indians. And there were turkeys and there's corn and cornucopias and squash and all of the things that we do to celebrate Thanksgiving. And also we're thankful, right? We think back to God's past faithfulness to us. One of our traditions is we go around the dinner table and we say, what are you thankful for this year? How would you like to thank God this year for something he's done in your life? And so we also do these kinds of remembrances of God's past faithfulness. And the truth is that it is good to remember God's faithfulness to you and your family. This is a good thing. It's a good thing to look back and to have regular times of gratitude and thanksgiving for what God has done, not only to you, for you in your past, but also to your family, to those who have lived before you, to remember. When we remember what God has done in our past, it gives us courage to press on in times when we feel challenged or in trouble or insecure or afraid or anxious. The Israelites are going to have so many challenges moving forward. We're going to get into that as we go into the book of Numbers, which please don't let the name of that book scare you. Numbers is a really exciting book. We get right back into our story. Um, so it has a, a dull name, but a lot of excitement that takes place. <laughs> but as we go forward into, into Numbers, we're going to see that the people needed to be reminded of God's miraculous acts of rescuing them from slavery and bringing them into freedom. And in the same way, we have so many situations in our life that threaten our peace and our security, our confidence. And we also need to look back regularly and remember how God has written his faithfulness into the story of our own lives. Can you think of a time, even just right now as you're thinking, where God has displayed his saving grace in your life? What has he done? Can you remember when he has has protected you or provided for you or guided you? And can you mark that in your life some way as, you know, I want to pause once a year on this date and just pray a prayer of thanksgiving. I always remember that it was on April 30th, 1983, when I was hit by a drunk driver. And I always remember that date because... It's a date that could have taken my life easily. 90 mile an hour head-on collision with a drunk driver. No brakes. Um, it was complete surprise. 
And I always remember, and I always say, Lord, thank you so much that you gave me now 36 more years where I could have died on that day. What, what would I have missed? I mean, I would have been with the Lord, yes, but I would have missed growing up with him in the ways that I've grown up over these many years. I remember the date on, in 1993 when my mom had a brain aneurysm, and she could have died, and God spared her life and has given her all of these many years, which has really um, given me such a deep appreciation for her life and for our life together. Um, there are many other things. Even now, as we face challenges, my husband's looking for a job, you know, and one of the things that keeps us from going to a place of fear and anxiety is just remembering his past faithfulness. When has he ever not provided for us lavishly? And so it's such an important thing to remember, to not only praise and give thanksgiving for his faithfulness, but also to give you confidence and assurance as you move forward through many unknown circumstances in life. Well, let's talk about the Day of Atonement. Um, as you remember, last week, the two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were killed when they tried to make an unlawful offering to the Lord. So you can imagine at this point that Aaron and his two other sons were probably really wondering, was it safe for them now to still enter the tabernacle? And so God, in chapter 16, makes it very clear that, yes, they were to, to enter the Holy of Holies, but they were only to do it on one day a year, which is the Day of Atonement. This is what chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 says. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die, for I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. Today, the Jews still celebrate this Day of Atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement that the Jews celebrate. You've heard of that. But you know, they can't celebrate in the appointed way because, for one, they, they no longer have a temple. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. It's never been rebuilt. In fact, if you go to Israel today, the actual location where the temple was built is now got the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim worship spot. So they don't have even access to that place most of the time. And then they don't have their high priest because Jesus came as their high priest and they've rejected him. So they can't celebrate the Day of Atonement in the way that God prescribes here. What is the Day of Atonement? Let, let me explain to you. It's a, a day of divine appointment. The Lord specified that it was going to be on the 10th day of the 7th month. And so on the Jewish calendar, that's about mid-September. And it was the day when the, the blood of a sacrificed goat was shed for the forgiveness of sins for the entire nation. So can you imagine a day in America where a sacrifice is made, an animal's body is slain, and blood is spilled for the sins of the entire nation? That's what this was like. Um, Hebrews 9.22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, only the high priest can perform this sacrifice, and he can only perform this sacrifice after he has first made a sacrifice for his own sins. So he has to be forgiven and purified of his own sins before he can make a sacrifice on behalf of someone else. What does atonement mean? 
The Hebrew word is kapar, and it means to ransom or to remove by paying a price. It's this act by which sinful man can be reconciled with holy God. And we know that holy God abhors sin, so no one can enter into his presence in a state of sinfulness. So this atonement means at-one-ment. It means the bringing together of holy God and sinful men in reconciliation. And it only can occur through the shed blood. So the shed blood of a sacrifice actually removes the penalty of this person's sin and allows the person to come because the animal dies in his place. The wages of sin is death. He's due death for sin. So the man can now come into the presence of holy God and atonement is at one moment. So on this particular day, the priest would place his hands on the head of a sacrifice, and symbolically, as he confessed the sins of the nation, the the sins would pass from the, the man onto the animal, and then the animal who was innocent of sin would die in the place of the sinners. So atonement literally means a price is paid and blood is shed because life must be given for life. And we see that in Leviticus 17.11. It says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement for life. So what does the Day of Atonement teach us? Well, first of all, it teaches us that there's no salvation for sin apart from the shedding of blood. And that is so unpopular. People do not like to think of Jesus' blood. We like to think of Jesus' life. We like to think of his person and his, his life on earth and all of the wonderful ways in which he touched people and healed and the truth he spent, spoke about the kingdom of God. But, it's, but the, we, contemplating his blood is so important, and it's what we do every time we take communion. In Matthew 26, 28, Jesus said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so every time we participate in communion, we are actually um, remembering his blood as an instrument of worship. Now, what happened on the Day of Atonement? So for the people of Israel, imagine that it's a day of Sabbath rest. So God commands them that they're actually to deny themselves. They are to spend the day remembering their affliction and their suffering that they experienced when they were under bondage in Egypt. So they were to fast. They were to confess their sins. Sin is always a picture of bondage. You know, you know that in your own life. When you're in sin, you're in bondage. You just want to be free of that which feels like a stronghold in your life. And so as they contemplated their sin, that would, it would be a picture of this oppression that they were experienced when they were in Egypt. And this, would, this contemplation would prompt their hearts to repent. Because, you know, repentance begins first with our thinking. It begins with this recognition that, yes, you know, that's a sin. And then the heart feels remorse, like, oh, I wish I just didn't do this thing or I didn't have this pattern in my life. And then repentance begins, like, with a change of action. It's a change of direction. It's turning away from sin and turning back to God. So the high priest would first have to make a sacrifice for himself and his family. He had to get a bull. It had to be perfect, without blemish, without defect. He would then um, take some of the bull's blood along with a censer of coals and some incense, and he would go into the Holy of Holies. I have a slide here for you to see. I showed it um, last week, but many of you weren't here. Um, The Holy of Holies. I'm so bad at using 
Oh, there. Okay, so here's the tabernacle right here. Here's the, the bread, table of bread and the lampstand. And then behind this curtain, which would go all the way across, is the Holy of Holies. This is where only the high priest could go once a year on this day for the Day of Atonement. And there's the cherubim. This is the Ark of the Covenant, and here's the cherubim. And then I'll explain to you what happens um, behind this curtain here, but you can see what I'm talking about. And so he would go with the incense and the coals, and together they would make a cloud of smoke that would cover the mercy seat. The mercy seat is what's on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this kind of cloud of smoke, God's presence was dwelling above the mercy seat, above the Ark of the Covenant, and it was dwelling in um, a glorious presence, a brilliant, glorious presence, not in a person, but in a sense of spiritual presence. So the smoke would sort of shield the high priest from God's glory so that he actually wouldn't die by looking upon the glory of God. And then he would take some of the blood of, from the bull and he would sprinkle it on top of the mercy seat. And then he would take some more blood and he would, he would sprinkle it seven times in front of the mercy seat. And so the imagery here is that holy God is present dwelling above the mercy seat and he's dwelling between the two cherubim, and he's looking down on the ark, and inside the ark is the law, is the Ten Commandments. The stones are inside the ark, and so he's looking down on the law that has been broken by his people because of sin. But once the blood is sprinkled on top of the mercy seat, now God is looking down upon the blood, and he's no longer able to see the broken commandments, the broken law, and that's where forgiveness happens. He looks upon the blood instead of the broken law. So that would then, once the high priest did that for the forgiveness of his own sins, then he would have to do another sacrifice for the forgiveness of all the people. So now two goats were used, and together these two goats make one sacrifice. So there's these two goats. The high priest would cast lots, kind of like throwing dice, to see which goat would be sacrificed and which goat would become the goat that was the scapegoat. So the goat that was sacrificed, that goat's blood would be used to atone for the sins of the people, just in the same way that, that, the, that the bull's blood had been used. But now the blood is um, sprinkled not only in the tabernacle, but also in the bronze altar, which um, on the horns of the bronze altar, which is... Can you go to the other slide? Okay, so here's... Um, now, here's the bronze altar right here, out here. So it's inside. So it's a bigger space of sprinkling of blood and out more into the outer court. And so this would purify the tabernacle from the sins of the people. And so then the high priest, he would lay his hands on the live goat and he would confess all the sins of Israel on the live goat. And then that goat was led outside of camp and into the wilderness and he was released and he was the scapegoat. And so he escaped death. He escaped into the wilderness so the releasing of this goat symbolizes that the sins of the people are actually being carried away, never again to be recognized. They've been forgiven. One of the Psalms that I love is Psalm 103.12, which says, As far as the east is from the west, so far have your transgressions been removed from us. Or John 1.29, which says, when John saw Jesus and he said, um, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Not just forgives, but removes, takes them away. 
Both of these goats are part of one sacrifice. So one dies, sheds his blood for the forgiveness of sins, and the other one lives and takes the shame and guilt of sin far away from the people. Then at the end of the day, the priest would have to change his clothes and wash himself, and then he would put on regular clothes, and he would make a burnt offering. And this offering was to symbolize total dedication of the people to God. Now they're forgiven, their shame and their guilt has been removed. Now they're going to promise to live in faith and obedience. Why don't we celebrate the Day of Atonement today? Jesus, he's the right answer to every question, right? Because of Jesus. So the Day of Atonement was designed by God as a foreshadow of Jesus. Everything that happens in, this, in the book of Leviticus is meant to set us up to recognize Jesus. So Aaron's high priestly duties on the Day of Atonement foreshadowed Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It's important for us to understand that Christ didn't just come to fulfill the system of sacrifices. God actually ordained that this system of sacrifices would prepare the world to um, bring his son into the world to complete them. So this is why we cannot grasp the fullness of what Christ did in the New Testament unless we deeply understand what happened in the Old Testament. We will never fully worship him for what he's done for us until we understand why he did what he did and how important it was for him to come and how everything in the Old pointed to the New Testament. It's like the Old Testament is like a set spike for the New Testament to come and fulfill all of God's promises. Doesn't this change your perspective about Leviticus? Doesn't it make you appreciate the Old Testament so much more? So the second thing is that Jesus Christ atoned for the sins of the entire world all at once. So Aaron was a sinful man. He had to atone for his own sins before he could make atonement for the people. But Jesus was sinless. He didn't have to atone for any sins. There was nothing to atone for. And while Aaron had to make atonement for his sins once a year before he could atone for the sins of the people, Jesus offered himself once and for all as a sacrifice. I love Hebrews 24. I think it's so beautiful. It's Hebrews 9, 24 through 28. I'm going to read it to you. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The third thing is that Jesus Christ is our high priest who not only made the sacrifice for our sins, but who was the sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is that unblemished goat or lamb, but in this context we'll call it a goat, um, that was killed on the cross and whose blood was shed for our sins. But Jesus is also the scapegoat. He's the one who had to bear our sins alone in the wilderness of suffering in order to remove our guilt and shame. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he said, um, he said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? 
There was a time on the cross where he was completely alone in a wilderness experience in his soul, bearing the sins of the world. This was necessary for his part for atoning for our sins. The fourth thing is that our sins are transferred onto Jesus' body through faith. So in the same way that the priest confessed the sins of the nation on the head of a goat, when you and I see ourselves as sinners and we confess our, our sins, our sins are transferred onto the body of Christ and his sacrifice on the cross is made sufficient for our sins once and for all, past, present, and future. Have you recognized your own sinfulness and confessed it to God and received this forgiveness, past, present, and future, for your sins? Because the truth is, is that the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the forgiveness of your sins and mine. It's for us. It's for us. His blood covers our sins so that we can live in fellowship with holy God. You know, um, there's a story that something that happened in November, actually 26 in 2008, that sort of gruesomely brings this to light. There was a gang of terrorists that went into the Taj Mahal in Mumbai, India, and they killed 200 people that were in the Taj Mahal at that time. Many of them are tourists. And there was a reporter who was interviewing one of the guests who had been in the hotel for dinner that night. And the guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner in this hotel and um, they heard gunshots and somebody at the table grabbed him and actually pulled him under the table. And then the assassins came into their restaurant and they just were shooting everybody, everybody inside they were shooting. And so miraculously this man survived. And in the interview that followed, um, the interviewer asked him, like, how did he live? How was he the only person at the table who lived? And he said, because when the assassins came to his table, they saw that he was covered in someone else's blood, and they presumed him to be dead. And so a vivid illustration of how this terrible event where the blood of another person saved his life. But Jesus did that willingly for us. He willingly shed his own blood to save our lives, to forgive our sins to welcome us into his family, to call us his daughters. It's an incredibly beautiful picture because God wants us to have life with him, to enjoy him, to live. Well, this is next section is going to be really fast, but I think it's the heartbeat of this lesson. And it's about the details of obedience that God prescribes in verses in chapters 17 through 27. So following God's instructions about the offerings and the feast, he then gets very specific then about his, how people, holy people, are to live. And it's very simply, obediently. The, the truth is that a holy life is characterized by obedience in the details. Now, these chapters give very specific details about the moral qualifications of the priesthood and about the moral purity of the people, because the people of Israel were to live very differently than the Canaanites, who were the ones who were living in the land that God was bringing them into. He was bringing them into the promised land that was inhabited by Canaanites. So he's teaching them, when you get there, you need to live very differently. You need to be set apart as my people. And so... Um, this, this would then, the instructions he's giving them would make them stand out in the way that they care for other people, in the way they live with sexual purity, and in the way they uphold social justice. 
So chapter 17, we looked at last week, that was all about eating forbidden foods. It was all about the blood of a sacrificed animal had to be shed in a prescribed way. And if anybody took the blood of an animal or a person in an unprescribed way, that they would, they would be cut off from the people. So God was very particular about the details of how blood was to be shed. Chapter 18 is about unlawful sexual relations. God speaks of the defilement that occurs when specific sexual practices take place. And he says that these types of sexual relations dishonor the body. People are made in the image of God, and God designed human beings to have sexual relationships in a certain way. And he says, when you don't do it that way, it dishonors the body. And repeatedly, over and over, he says, this must not be done because I am the Lord your God. In chapter 19, he talks about all of these details of laws. So he talks about um, respecting people and the Sabbath and the land, not stealing, deceiving, or lying, not being stingy with money, perverting justice or spreading slander, not endangering others, seeking revenge, hating your neighbor, not practicing divination, seeking mediums, cutting or tattooing the body. Now, these were, these were not Moses' instructions. These were God's instructions. This is what God said. And we, we know that we don't know all the reasons behind them, but we know that, the, that God was teaching the Israelites how to dwell as a people with him in their midst. Chapters 20 and 22 to 22 are all instructions about punishments for sin. And over and over again, it's because God says, I am holy, therefore you shall be holy. Chapter 23 is about the celebrations, which we talked about earlier. These were days of joyful celebration. Because God was living in their midst, there was so much to rejoice over, remember, and celebrate. And then chapter 24 is about blasphemy. So interesting. So we don't want to think that because God was living in their midst and they had all of these instructions, don't think for a minute that that meant that nobody was rebellious or hard-hearted. That's what we learn here is there was still rebellion going on. This is a story where um, the son of an Israelite mother who had an Egyptian father was cursing God's name. And so he was brought to Moses. And Moses then went to the Lord and said, what shall I do with this young man who's cursing your name? And God says, you need to take him outside the camp and stone him for all to see who heard him curse my name. And the reason why is just given over and over. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord your God. The truth is that a holy life is characterized by obedience in the details. Obedience in the details. As we end the book of Leviticus, God reiterates again. He says, the Mosaic covenant, which is if you obey me, I will bless you. If you don't obey me, it will not go well for you. And you will not get to stay in the promised land. And as we go forward in Israel's history, we see time and time again that to the degree to which they obeyed and worshipped and were true, they were blessed and the degree to which they disobeyed, they suffered. You know, the thing is, I think what I want to share with you is that details matter to God. It really matters. It really matters that we block time out of our schedules to study his word. We don't know him. We don't know his holiness if we don't study the book of Leviticus. We don't understand the details and their context unless we come and we open the word and we study. It matters. It matters that we bow our hearts to him in prayer. It matters that we submit ourselves and trust him with our lives and call upon his name. It matters that we worship him in song or in community, in communion, that we come together as community and we worship him. It matters that we stop the noise of our lives to listen to his still small voice or to see the 
beauty of his creation. It matters that we repent of our sin and we choose life and obedience in him. You know, yes, we're forgiven of our sins in Christ, past, present, and future. We don't have to live under all of the laws, but it matters that we choose to um, faith, we choose faith and obedience in the daily details of our lives. And you know what? We will not drift into holiness. We won't just end up there one day because we've aged. It matters that we're intentional with our practices. I love this quote by D.A. Carson, and I want to share it with you. I put it up on the screen so that you can see it as well. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. That's the natural way. The Israelites ended up there time and time again because they weren't obedient and they didn't pay attention to God's words. Holiness takes intentionality and practice. Now, you have to understand that positionally, if you are in Christ, you are already holy. You've been set apart by the blood of Christ. You have been forgiven, past, present, and future. You have a right standing before God. You are wrapped in the righteous robes of his righteousness. That's done. But practically, you have choices to make about how you live your life. We don't live under the law But it matters that we live our life as holy people in relationship with the holy God. And do you know why? Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. You are a human tabernacle of God's glory. You are his light and his salt into the world. And people are watching your life. And it really matters that you shine forth the glory of God in the best that you can. And be aware, it takes a lifetime to do it well. It's a journey of relationship. It's not a list of to-dos. It's about coming alive in and of yourself to this relationship with God. 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20 says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in the body. Are you doing that? What do the details of your life look like when no one is looking? In the secret places of your life and in your heart, are there areas of your life that you need to surrender to the Lord and commit to obey him and trust him and to have greater faith? Remember that you live your life for an audience of one. He's the only one that you're going to stand before at the end of the day and give account for your life. He's the only one who sees all the places of your heart that no one else sees. A holy life is characterized by obedience in the details. And our lives are meant to be holy because God dwells in us. And isn't that amazing? God dwells in us. So will you stand? I want to pray for us as we go out to our groups. Father, we, um, first of all, we just want to praise you for your holiness. And we want to praise you that you love us so much that you call us to be holy because we're in relationship with you. 
We have been made holy through the blood of Christ. And thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you that we don't have to sacrifice animals, that we don't have to stay outside the tabernacle while someone else presents our sins to you, that we have access to you through the blood of Christ, that we belong to you, Lord. Thank you. We have access to you. Thank you, Lord, that you are constantly at work to transform us. It's a grace-driven effort. It's your grace and our obedience together that makes a change in our hearts that leads us to be more like Christ. And we thank you for that, Lord. We have been changed. I'm sure most of us in this room can look back to a year or two years or five years or 20 or 50 years and say, I have been changed because of my relationship with you. And so we praise you and thank you for the journey of faith that truly does change our lives. And Lord... I just want to ask that today that you would show us the details of disobedience in our hearts where we can be prompted by your spirit to lay it at your feet and just trust you. Lord, we want to trust you. We want to live before you in full authenticity and faith. We know that it actually really matters. It matters. And so we thank you, Lord, for how you're teaching us to trust you and to believe and to surrender our full hearts to you. We love you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen.